I've not been led in that song in a long time, and that was tremendous, Matt. Thank you, and a lot of amens with the scripture, but there should have been a lot of amens with that song. Tremendous expression we just made. Grateful that you're here, grateful that uh, we have the Lord's Day together, but also that we have a potluck after this. I hope you'll stay. It gives us a chance to intermingle with people and beyond just a, a, to a hello coming in the door. We have a ton of young people right now and their parents who are boxing up those meals and taking them out. That's where you'll see gaps here uh, right now because they came to early service. It was rough on them. I was watching them the whole time going, I don't know if they're going to make it. And they just kind of leaned farther and farther and farther. But, you know, they made it, and, and as they were going out, I saw a group of girls. I think Molly Adkins was driving, I think. And uh, as they were going by, I said, who's driving? And she says, I am. And then as they just went by, it was Hayden who whispered to me, pray for us. Pray for us. And so I said, we'll do that. So I had a prayer for her and, uh, and the rest of them. And I, I hope the people they were supposed to get a meal to aren't starving right now. Anyway. Uh, I got to go to class 5th uh, and 6th grade, and I, I don't often get to do this, but I decided for a quarter I'm going to go around and see different stuff, and Ben and Lydia were teaching that class, and it was tremendous. I, I, I don't get that chance very often, but I was excited again about all the prophecies of Jesus and those kids, amazing young people who were just taking all that in, and they taught so well, Ben and Lydia both, just as they were, as they were doing that. It was great to be in that class, and I'm grateful knowing our young people are getting that stuff some really good stuff and and that's really hard because Emily Gay was one of them and she is tough anyway so anyway we uh I was just impressed and I just want you to know the classes here and the material being taught at least in that class and I'm assuming all were just really good and I'm, I'm grateful for it so be be staying for our potluck afterwards if you can and uh there's lots of stuff going on right now at bulletin it's it's worth a, a good perusal if you're visiting with us we're grateful you're here um the blessing it is to see a fresh, new, different face. And I saw several, and I'm, I'm grateful that you're here. And I want you to know that it does something to us. And I, I hope also that you are assisted in your worship today by how it's led. If you would join us in Matthew chapter 27, we'll be there for the entire time of our lesson today. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. That's supposed to be Matthew 27. It says 26, but I was right in what I said, Matthew 27. Also, Jan Beeson is at the med. Uh, he's having a health thing. We may have said that, but I just want to stress that. Keep him and uh, his family in your prayers. It's just he's had some medical stuff lately. Deserves a break. Okay, so as you uh, read this, I want you to look at the font, you know, the style of the letters innocence and responsibility i'm i'm modeling this after some good quality american literature of the past anybody think of a title and that font an author i don't even know if it's american or not but it's literature right jane austen does that look like jane austen uh, you know, pride and prejudice sense and sensibility innocence and responsibility and i even use that old english type anyway so 
I hope that impresses one or two of you anyway. Um, Innocence and responsibility. That's what Matthew chapter 27 is about. I'm going to define these two terms. First of all, there's innocence. Uh, It means freedom from guilt or blame. This person did not do the wrong. Innocent. Did not do the wrong. I'm going to use it in a sentence. Someone thought they saw Teddy Hooten stealing a church bus for a joy ride around Jonesboro, but a look at the video confirmed his innocence. It wasn't him, it was Clint Dials. That's, that's what the, the sentence goes on. The idea is you can prove he did not do what he's accused of. Innocence. Word number two, these good old words. Responsibility means taking credit or, in this case, blame for being the cause of something else. Something you did led to something that happened and you're responsible for it. And the ability to accept whatever consequences come. So let's say after, after Jackson Brewer dropped and broke the plate at the church potluck, he took full responsibility replacing it with another. There's, there's your sentence. It's responsibility. Good, solid, old words that people should live by. The, the goal is to live our lives in innocence, to be, guilt, to be innocent of any kind of sin or error. But we know that that's not likely. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to sin. And so the other great word is to take responsibility for your sin and do whatever it takes to restore your innocent status. Th- th- those are the two terms that, that, that are, are all the way laced through Matthew chapter 27. Uh, Matthew's goal is a couple of things. One is he's going to demonstrate the innocence of Jesus. He's wanting us to know that what all this stuff that happens in Matthew 27, all that stuff that's so tragic and terrible was not his fault. He was an innocent person who was falsely killed. Now, you see this in Matthew 27. You look at your chapter. uh, You see Judas hangs himself, verse 3. But in that section between 3 and 11, Judas comes to him and says, Guys, I realize I betrayed innocent blood. Judas pronounces Jesus innocent. He's guilty, but the religious leaders of that time say, what is that to us? It's your responsibility, and there's our words. This man was innocent. It's your responsibility, and there's the first appearance of the words that are laced all the way through the chapter. Judas says he's innocent. Then if you look at the next section, verses 11 through about uh, 23, you've got Pilate who's asking him all these questions, and it's obvious to Pilate that Jesus is no threat to him, and he's an innocent party, and it's the envy of the religious leaders that's caused all this. And not only that, but his wife has this dream. You remember this, right? It's in the text. And he says, she sends a message to Pilate, don't have anything to do with this innocent man. Judas wants to let, uh, Pilate wants to let him go. He just can't seem to muster the courage to do the right thing. Pilate knows he's innocent. And then the man who sees it all, the centurion at the foot of the cross, says he's innocent. Matthew is wanting us to understand Jesus was innocent of all these charges. In fact, he's the only innocent human being to ever walk the planet. But the second thing is he wants to demonstrate who is responsible for this. Who has the responsibility for what happens to Jesus in Matthew 27? And it's laced all the way through the chapter. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to have it fill in the blank thing. It's a, 
if it weren't for so-and-so, Jesus wouldn't have been killed. And just take Matthew 27 as our text. If it weren't for the chief priests and the elders, Jesus would not have been killed. In chapter 26, it closes with these religious leaders meeting after dark in, an, in a totally illegal meeting. So they're at dark. They don't want to be known. They don't want it recorded. They just want to meet and find out a way to kill Jesus. As 27 opens up, it's early morning before people really get up, and they marshal Jesus on off to Pilate. And there's Pilate who sits while Jesus stands, or Jesus is then tried. And what he finds is that there's this charge presented against him, and, 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 but yet none of that compels Pilate. We'll talk about that in a minute. But what, there are other charges the chief priests bring up, but Matthew doesn't mention them. They have a very small role right here, but they're arguing the case. But they can't get what they want. And I'll be honest with you, as he's standing before Pilate, it sure looks like Pilate is about to let Jesus go until this religious group of people muster up a crowd of people, get them all stirred up, and manipulate them to pressure Pilate. Now, if you had a picture of all the stuff that happened in Matthew 27, you'd have certain individuals in clear focus at the front of that picture. But in the background, in the blur, where you think stuff that's not all that important happens, there's lurking the religious leaders who think if we can just stay back in the background, we will not have to take any responsibility for what happens here. And the interesting thing about Judas, for instance is that they want to make sure that they do right by this 20, 30 pieces of silver. It's not right to take the 30 pieces of silver and put it in the treasury. But it's a-okay for us to kill an innocent man. Their value systems are totally wrong. Can I tell you, if it weren't for the chief priests and elders, the religious leaders of that day, Jesus would never have been killed. But also, if it wasn't for Judas, he would have never been killed. The one who agrees to go out and for hire, turn Jesus over and even kisses him in order to identify for the soldiers who to arrest. But in this chapter, his conscience gets to him. He decides, this is an innocent man. I've betrayed innocent blood. And so he tries to go and undo the process. But as we said already, the religious leaders say, what's it to us? That's your problem, not ours. Judas is so aware of his guilt and responsibility, he can't live with it. And he decides he's going to go and kill himself because he can't live with the guilt. If it weren't for Judas, he wouldn't have died. If it weren't for Pilate, Jesus would not have been killed. Pilate was this weird fella. He is a, a governor Tiberius is the Roman Empire, emperor at this time, but he breaks out the Roman Empire. It's huge. He can't possibly rule it all. And so what he does, he breaks it in parts, and he gives people certain sections to be governor. Pilate has Judea. Pilate is this guy who takes care of this one little section, one little piece of the pie for the Romans. His job, number one, keep the peace. Make people happy. Don't let there be stirrings that really upsets the emperor when there's a stir up somewhere. So keep everything peaceful. Make judgments, keep law and order, and collect the taxes. That's your job, Pilate. And so Pilate takes it. And so these, these Jewish leaders bring Jesus to Pilate. They cannot put somebody to death. They have to hand him over to the Romans to put somebody to death. But if you're going to get the Romans 
to take this guy out, you better get a charge they care about. If you bring some religious matter they don't care about, they're going to say, we don't care, go on. If Churches of Christ a few years ago would have said, hey, do we use one cup or many cups for the Lord's Supper? We take that to the President of the United States. He would have probably said, you know, I I don't care. Y'all solve this yourself. That's exactly what happens in the book of Acts, for instance. Pilate only can kill somebody when it's a charge the Romans care about. So the Jews, when they bring Jesus, they say, this man claims to be the king of the Jews in opposition to you. It's a treasonous charge. But Pilate knows pretty quickly it's not really significant. And he knows it's envy. But you know what? He's powerless because these religious leaders stir up the people. And when the people get stirred up, his number one job is to keep the peace. And so the people get stirred up by the religious leaders and they come and they say, we want Barabbas instead. They do this weird tradition of releasing a prisoner on holidays. Pilate thinks he can get out of it if he'll just release somebody and he'll just release Jesus, but they don't go for it. The people want Barabbas instead. Pilate could have, if he wanted to keep law and order, he could have released Jesus. He wanted to release Jesus, but the pressure of the people made it politically expedient to get rid of him. If it weren't for Pilate, he wouldn't have been killed. If it wasn't for the people, he wouldn't have been killed. Pilate was on the verge of letting him go when the people got out of hand into a mob mentality and forced Pilate's hand. The weirdest scene in all of it, and I want you to get this in your head, is that Pilate standing before the people says, I want you to know that I'm going to hand this man over to you to be crucified, but I want you to know it's not my fault. And he washes his hands in a very dramatic scene, ceremonial, and says, I'm innocent of the blood. The people say, that's fine with us. His blood be upon us and who else? On our children These men are saying, you know what, we'll we'll take the blame, we'll take the blame for all the generations of our lives, all our children will bear the blame for this, and so they are uh, agreeing to do this. It's a very strange scene, but you know what, they are exactly right. The guilt will go on to their children when their children sin. There's one other group of people who are in this chapter who are responsible. In English literature, it's called the implied reader. It's the person reading the account and the person for whom the account was written. Matthew is writing the story. There were many crucifixions in the first century. It's not a novel thing. What Jesus experienced was not unique. There are lots of people who experienced this kind of thing in history, but we don't have a record of any of them. But this one, we have a whole chapter dedicated to this scene right here. The expiration date and the sadness of those horrible experiences back then were gone but this one lives on forever in the gospel of Matthew Matthew is giving us a front row seat because of a reason because this story was written for you and for me we are the implied reader let me take you back to Matthew chapter 1 which makes this a a Christmas time story the the angel comes to Joseph and explains where Jesus is coming from And after he'd considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, the father of Jesus, right? 
and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home to be your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. That's the great Christmas story, right? She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Why did Jesus come in the first place? Okay, I'm going to ask this again. Notice the underlining. I'm helping you here. Why did Jesus come at all? Whose sin is he saving people from? Your own. Jesus had to come because of the sins of the people. It's because of the sins people commit that Jesus has to come because we're in trouble. Our sin, the very first one and all of them after that, put us in a very precarious position. We need to be saved because we can't save ourselves. And the only reason Jesus came was to save us from our sins. So if Jesus, let's see if you'll agree to this. If Jesus didn't have to come, he could not have been killed. Is that a, is that a fair? If he didn't have to come in the first place, he would not have been killed that day in Matthew 27, right? And it's your sin that made it necessary for him to come. It's your sin that made it necessary for him to have to die. It's your sin that's responsible for the death of Jesus. Is that all true? It is true. You're there in Matthew 27. You are the implied reader. You're the one this is written for. This is the, you're the one that needs to hear this because you're responsible for what happens here. And what happens here saves you from your sin. You're there in Matthew 27. The implied reader. That leads to a question of what in the world do we do about this? By the way, let me tell you, just from this, especially the people, the fact that they say his blood be upon us and our children, people have used that to treat Jews terribly in history. The Jewish people, the most mistreated people on the face of the planet in history, and it's largely because people feel justified. Look, they brought this blood on themselves. That's not what the account is for, but that's what it's used for. We should not mistreat Jews because of this. Judas's choice of taking his life was unnecessary despite how guilty he was. Pilate's attempt to divert the blame, all that stuff is, is out of bounds for us from this chapter. But the question becomes, what do we do with our guilt? Once you're responsible, once you realize Jesus is innocent, we're responsible, something's got to be done. When you take responsibility, you also face consequences. So what do you do when you finally come to the conclusion, it is my fault, I am responsible for the death of Jesus, this innocent one? What do you do? Well, I'll tell you what you don't do. You don't become like the chief priests and elders who think somehow I'm far enough in the background that I don't have any guilt. I'm so far back, there's so many more people in front of me who are more directly responsible for the death of Jesus. I'm way back in the back, I'm in the blurry background of the picture, and so nobody can really trace it back to me. You know who's innocent in history? No one anywhere. We're all in the picture, up front and close and focused upon. They fooled themselves into thinking they weren't responsible enough, and we might be hundreds of years removed from that day on Calvary but y'all, we're there. It is our guilt, crystal clear. So don't fool yourself into thinking you're not responsible. Second, don't be like Pilate and think that you can do good enough to reclaim innocence 
Pilate thought, I'll just trade off somebody for him. I'll just send out Barabbas and I'll do something good for somebody and that will pay off my bad to him. You can't do enough good in your lifetime to offset the responsibility and guilt that you've acquired for your sin. There's no one good enough and do enough good to pay off innocence. Pilate couldn't claim it. Another thing you don't do like Pilate is don't pronounce yourself innocent by some cleansing process. He thought, you know what makes me innocent? I'll wash my hands. Wash your hands? There's people throughout history who've come up with many different atonement tactics. I don't know, we'll just, we'll just stand right here or bow on my knee and I'll just pray and that will save me. Or I'll just do many good deeds, or I'll just do particular good things, or I'll treat particular people, or I'll give enough money to God. Or they'll do all sorts of things, and they'll set up some kind of system where they think logically from their own thinking, this pays off my guilt. Listen, the guilty party can't determine what makes you innocent again. The guilty party is not in a position to determine this. The innocent one is the one who can tell you what it takes to atone for the guilt. Don't set up some false test that lets you off the hook. Don't be like Pilate. And don't be like Judas and kill yourself because you can't handle the guilt. There is something from the text that we learn that you do. And that is be like the people. I know it sounds weird because the people do some awful things in this chapter, but so do we. First thing you have to do is you have to claim responsibility this is a particular holiday Matthew chapter 27 they're getting ready for the Passover capital P Passover and on the Passover these people consider what they've done and they say to Pilate his blood will be upon us we are responsible they claim the responsibility for them and their children I can't imagine this I can't imagine doing something and saying my my kids will pay for this too and being willing to do it. That's just baffling to me. But they decide. They decide we'll be responsible. And they are. They are responsible. So that's your first move. But those same people appear in this same city 50 days later. For you SpongeBob fans, there would be a, a thing that goes across the front. 50 days later, Right? 50 days later, something happens over the next 50 days that makes what they did look different. Right after what they did, Jesus is beaten awful bad, nearly to death. He's hung on a cross and nailed there. Darkness comes over the world from noon till three. A weird time for total darkness. He cries out, there's an earthquake. He's later taken down from that cross and he's put in a grave. And he's there for parts of three days. And then on that Sunday, he rises from the dead. The only man to ever be raised from the dead like this, ready for the resurrection life. And then he appears over 40 days in several different settings with his disciples and with other people, he appears several times over that 40 days and then he ascends into heaven 
where we know he was enthroned, although we don't see it, we know it happened. And then 10 more days after that, he tells his disciples to stay in Jerusalem because something special is about to happen. So in that 50 days, something happens in that story. And now that same city, there's another holiday celebration. You may know what it is. Passover here and Pentecost. Same city, and we know these same people and others are all assembled there for Pentecost, and Peter starts telling the story, a story that's familiar to these people. They remember taking responsibility for it 50 days ago, but there's been some addendums added. There's been some things that have, that have contributed to the story since then that completely reframe everything. They start hearing about a resurrection, about this man that they, they are responsible for killing is no longer dead. And he was no regular man. He was no prophet. He was no teacher. He was no rabbi. He was the son of God. And because of that, God raised him back up and they start hearing the story. Now they're looking back at what they did through the lens of resurrection. It changes everything. Everything's altered. And suddenly they realize what they done in a deeper level than they were they know what they've done 40 years 50 days ago they know what they're responsible for but now they really know what they did and now they're sorry so first of all they acknowledge their guilt on the passover now they feel the conviction at pentecost when understanding what they've done when at the end of that sermon, it wasn't really the end of the sermon, Peter was going to go a lot longer than what he did. He had a full sermon prepared. And they intervened. Like some of you, why don't you shorten that thing? No, that's not what they did. They said, we're convinced already in the middle of your sermon, we don't need any more words. When he said, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. And they wouldn't deny it because they took responsibility for it 50 days ago. Both Lord and Messiah. This is the one that you would hear hearing who is going to come. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. The guilt entered their mind and their heart. They didn't just know what they did was wrong. They felt it, and they had to do something. Stop this preaching, Peter. I don't want to hear any more of the story. I need a solution. And that's when they asked the question, what do we need to do? They said, Peter... And the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What, what do we, we got to do something. It's no longer, we'll set up some water and wash our hands. We'll bow and pray. We'll do whatever we think makes it right. No, no, what you do is you ask him what I need to do. You ask the innocent what you need to do. He'll tell you and direct you to atonement. And that's exactly what they do. Brothers, what do we need to do? And they get the answer and they repent and they're baptized. Because of what Peter says on this next screen. A verse you know. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, but don't forget the next verse. If you memorize Acts 2.38, add 2.39 to it. This promise is for you and for your... Why would they add something for their children? Because 50 days ago, they said the blood be upon us and our children. And they're right. 
And this is a solution for them. This is what they needed to do to overcome their guilt. And you know what their kids needed to do to overcome their guilt? The same exact thing. You know what their grandkids need to do? The same exact. You know what you need to do? The same exact. You know what your kids need to do? The same exact. You know what your grandkids will need to do one of these days? Same exact. You know what your great, great, great grandchildren need to do? And I don't care how culture changes this in the next 50 years when they try to modernize and speed up everything. It doesn't matter what anybody else says. Do you know what people need to do to be saved? Repent and be baptized, every one of you. You, your children, grandchildren, great, great, grandchildren, great, 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 great. We could go on forever. There's some absolutes in this world. And I know there's some, well, depends on how you look at this or depends on how you, I know there's a lot of things like it, but you know there are some absolutes. Jesus absolutely was sinless and innocent. Is that true? Guys, if we don't say amen, every one of us, we might as well quit because if you don't believe this and you don't agree to this, we are not brothers. You have to believe this. It's not a choice. It's not an option. Well, maybe. No. Jesus was sinless and innocent, and that's the only way he could be the sacrifice for our sins. That's an absolute. Second, you are responsible, and you are guilty for the death of Jesus. You believe that? It's an absolute. And if you can't repent and acknowledge your guilt that drove that, you can't be saved. We can't be brothers this way, brothers and sisters this way. It's an absolute. And there's a third thing. There is a way that you can. There's something you can do that you can't know. There's something you must, must do to be saved repent and be baptized absolute truth there's lots of variables there's lots of areas of opinion church there are and there will be and we need to honor that but there are absolutes and here's three of them and this morning if you haven't done this if you haven't recognize Jesus as the sinless son of God and you haven't recognized your own guilt and responsibility and you haven't responded by repenting and being immersed what are you waiting for if you're ready right now so are we as we stand and as we sing how deep